welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Be open to the possibility of what if there's a different narrative you could tell yourself? What if there's a different question you could be asking yourself? What if the crucible that, that has held you back is untethered and is actually that opportunity? What if, indeed, how could viewing your crucible not as something that happened to you, but something that happened for you, change the way you chart a course for moving beyond? Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week, you'll hear from James Kelly, author of The Crucible's Gift, who discusses with Warwick how setbacks and failures can be a catalyst to increase self-awareness, live with greater integrity, and develop deeper compassion. For others, yes, but also critically for ourselves. James, it's wonderful to be with you and thanks so much for being on the podcast. Um, we got in touch, I don't know if it was a few weeks ago, it wasn't that long, and um, and it's just amazing. I love the title of your book, The Crucible's Gift, and mine's Crucible Leadership. It's like, okay, so your, yours is first, like 2018 or something, and so it's like, hey, what's going on here? But um, yeah, obviously, uh, and you actually spent some time in Western Australia, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. But obviously, my book is sort of anchored in my story and my crucible and the 150 year old family media business. But I, I love the title of in your Australia. Book. Yes, the 150 year old family media business in Australia. Absolutely. Uh, and so I love the title of your book, The Crucible's Gift. And we'll get to that in a moment because I've been thinking about that. Just recently, we had a Harnessing Resilience series on our podcast, and the word gift has come up. And so I've really been, because, you know, Gary asked me, I don't know, a few weeks, a few months ago, do you just see what you went through as a gift? And I was like, ah, not really. But yeah. I've been changing my mind just recently to talk about continuous learning. But before we get into the theme, things of your book, tell us a bit about the origin story, the backstory of the Crucible's gift and how you came to write it, a bit about you growing up. You probably had a few crucibles, but... This, 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 the love of the, of the love of this book came out of somewhere, right? The desire to write this. So, talk about sort of the origin story. Well, I just want to first start by saying thank you to both you guys for having me <laughs> on today. And secondly, since my book came first with the word crucibles, I am requesting royalty fees on your book as you sell it. <laughs> uh, just to be clear, the you know the origin story of the book is never the the book itself. It's the it's the path leading to it, right? And hence your book. And so I found for myself that I'd always wanted to be better at leading, right? But I had a bunch of baggage. And I was really curious about how individuals or leaders that I interviewed, how they perceived their baggage and what they did with it and how do they unpack it and how do they refold it back in the luggage and, and keep moving forward. And so for me, it was really an interesting exercise of accepting what was, what is, and, and the possibilities of what could be. Um, and so I went on this journey. I had a podcast for three years, um, and that's where all these interviews came from was the podcast. And it was always about 
um, not what you do, but, but really who you are in your journey. And, and that's where I think it comes from, you know, at the end of the day, just to, to, to say it succinctly, you know, the origin of the book was me trying to unpack why I felt like I was failing as a leader. Um, and, and how can I embrace my own crucibles as a springboard to the future? And where did that come from? That sense of, gosh, I'm failing as a leader. And so talk a bit about maybe some of the crucibles you had. What, what led you to that kind of um, viewpoint of yourself, if you will? I mean, clearly it's lack of self-esteem. We can start with that part. Um, and so like, um, yeah, I just think I always, I didn't have the best modeling as a child, right? And so that's that's your framework of a house is, is that, as your parents. And so the framework wasn't great. You, you know, I, I, I often tongue in cheek say, um, I grew up in an Irish Catholic household um, with a touch of violence, uh, all the guilt and no Catholicism. Right. So like, like <laughs> and, uh, you know, it wasn't overtly violent. It wasn't like the worst house ever, but it was cold. My mom's Scottish Canadian, which just in itself of an old school Catholic is, is innately a bit cold. Um, my dad, you know, he was a product of a World War II vet who was at Pearl Harbor. So there's just a series of things that I think culminate together that left me not feeling great about myself over time, you know, and, and then self-talk obviously is, is a huge part of that negative self-talk. That is interesting. So you had that experience. And so um, what were some of the other beats to that, your crucible stories that have moved on from that kind of family? Yeah. So I think that, you know, it, um, the other thing that came up later in life is that I, I had a learning disability. So I think, you know, when all you know is you're bad at something or you're not good at something or you can't succeed at something, those seeds are planted quite young, you know, um, in reflecting on my parents and, and, you know, and I always say this to my mom, you know, my dad passed away when I was 20 and that we can talk about that. That definitely was a crucible. Oh. Um, they did the best that they could with what they knew. So I don't right. hold any resentment towards them, but I'm still a product of that environment. I mean, there's a, there's a really vivid story. You know, my, my dad, uh, by all accounts was a good human being with, with, but he's flawed. He's human. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I vividly remember this, the orange shag carpet with the wood paneling walls at our house growing up, mm. very 70 chic, which would probably be really in style now anyways. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, re but I remember, uh, my older brother who was 16 at the time, you know, my mom was married previously and my dad married and adopted these two kids, which was great. You know, part of the adoption was that the, the, their biological father wanted nothing to do with them. And I, my dad agreed, you know, and the guy was wealthy. Um, but my dad was willing to take that on because my mom and, and he loved the kids. So my, my older brother, John, um, just has a series of problems, still does at 53 years old, uh, a lot of problems, but I remember him and my dad were getting into it yelling. And I vividly remember my dad pushing my brother down. My dad was a very, um, intimidating individual. He grew up on the farms in Colorado, bailing hay the old way with the hooks. So he had like Popeye forearms like just this big, strong man. My brother, John, you know, uh, is in puberty at 16, could bench press 225, like oh 15, gosh. 20 times, wow. squat 500 pounds, really big, but 5'8", right? So big and strong. And I remember them getting in a fight and my dad pushed him into a chair. His fist was cocked back. My other brother, who was 14 or 15, who was six foot six two, 200 pounds, was holding him back. 
I'm in the corner cowering down. My mom is screaming. And so those, those events didn't happen every week, but boy, they happened enough to, to make you afraid of male authority, to make you afraid of uh, standing up, you know, um, you know, but I, I will say in that moment, the ability to say uh, to yourself, boy, this is chaos. Uh, boy, this is really, really unhealthy. I got that at nine, 10, you know, there's some other stuff that happened in there as well, but, sure, but I, sure. but, but the other, the other story I remember vividly, and this kind of speaks to my resilience, I think as a human being at 13, you know, I, and I don't remember the whole instance of what mm-hmm. happened leading up to it. I'm sure I did something by the way, I was mm-hmm. 13, but, but I remember my dad backed me into the sink and he poked my chest um, two or three times. And I said, if you ever F and touch me and I, we never swore in the house, you sure, know, it was, it was sure. the kids never swore, but I said, if you F and touch me again, I'm leaving. And he slapped me and I walked out the door and I hear my mom screaming, Craig, go get him. Mm-hmm. And I run up the street and I run around the corner and he gets in his car and he's like, get in the car. And I'm yelling, are you going to hit me again? Mm-hmm. Are you, and what was fascinating is that shame that I put on my dad? Cause mm-hmm. the neighbors heard it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never touched me again, except for one other time when I was 18, but mm-hmm. I totally deserved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I knew I deserved it when he hit me, uh, slapped me, I guess it's probably a better way to say it. Cause I said something derogatory to my mom and I deserved right. it when I said it, but I mean, it was interesting that at that moment I had the strength to stand up to a man that was hugely scary to me, um, as a child. So that was another crucible moment of saying, okay, I'm not going to take it anymore. So you you had some challenging circumstances in your family, brother, dad, but you know we say, and I'm sure you say, I know you say, when you're faced with a crucible, you have a choice. And I, I love the fact that one of the people on there said something about you know I forget who it was choice to wallow or or not. I mean I swear I use that word wallow all the time. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. I'm reading this wow every week. Yeah. And, you know, hide under the covers and let the next 30, 40, 50 years go by until it's all over. Or to say, gosh, this is awful, but I'm going to go in a different direction. You chose a different path. I mean, just, just you know, you mentioned uh, just getting through school, college, PhD. It wasn't easy. There are some people that it's like studying is just easy. You know, 4.0s is like breathing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm blessed. I did undergrad degree at Oxford and Harvard Business School and all. Well, I had to study. I remember there was this English guy that, you know, drinking, drinking age is 18 in, in the UK. So, you know, drinking himself silly most of the day. And he would get like perfect grades and he never studied, and but he was just a genius. Well, that wasn't me. And I look seeming it wasn't you. So it's just, I find that all fascinating that your path to writing this book, your path to getting a PhD, none of it was easy. But yet, how did that serve you that, you know, life wasn't easy, even in your chosen path of academia in yeah. a sense? You know, there there's something deep inside me, uh, and it's probably as unhealthy as it is. The PhD is a great example. Um, I wanted to prove people wrong who thought that I wasn't smart. Um, And I thought by getting three additional letters behind my name would prove those people wrong. Um, And, you know, lo and behold, they didn't prove a damn thing. They didn't really care. And so I gave weight to a bunch of people that really didn't matter. 
Uh, and you're you're laughing because I feel like maybe you can you can relate to that a <laughs> well, little bit. Well, 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 right. I mean, I I have an Oxford degree and a Harvard MBA, but you know, did that help me when the company went under? No, I thought of I was a moron. It actually made it worse. How could a Harvard MBA make such massively stupid decisions? Yeah, and we're talking. You know, I graduated in, I don't know, May, June, 87. I launched the takeover in late August, 87. It wasn't like, oh, it was 20 years after. She's probably forgotten his classes. Well, no. We're talking a couple months. I mean, golly. So, yes, no, I can I can relate. It didn't make me feel any... It made me feel worse, actually, having the credentials. <laughs> yeah. Well, I even can imagine that situation. Like, you know, you're making this... You know, I've met enough Harvard MBAs where there's... Sometimes I won't say generally speaking. I'm saying I'm going to say generally speaking, not always. There's a bit of arrogance from it, right? I right. guys from Harvard, I know it. And then to walk out and and basically make a big mistake, like that <laughs> has to hurt your ego a bit. Yeah, it does. It gives you a bit of humility. So, and you spent some time in Western Australia. It was. Did you get your PhD? there or was that i forget university of western australia right and that was a remarkable experience there's something you told me james and we talked beforehand that i thought was really fascinating there's a couple things you were talking about what you went through as a young man in your you know in your teens and your 20s and you you mentioned just now about your resilience but as warwick said we just finished a series on resilience and one of the things that two of our guests said who have researched resilience scientifically is that it's not just about digging down deep inside yourself. True resilience is also, yes, you find some power, some strength within, but you also reach without. You you reach for the resources around you. You told me something about uh, in your 20s. Uh, I, I want to find the exact quote um, where you said that guys in their 20s, empathy isn't part of their skill set. So as you were trying to to find your resilience it was hard for you, wasn't it, to find it kind of in your peer group because us guys in our 20s aren't always prepared to provide that kind of support to our friends. Yeah. You know, my, my dad died when I was 20. I was at university. Um, he died relatively quick within six months. He had a congestive heart failure. He he, he what didn't make the cut to get a heart transplant. Then he did, and then he passed away. So um, it was quite sudden. My parents had moved from, you know, I grew up in Portland. They moved to Chicago and went to college, but they, my dad had just taken a, a job, a transfer with his company down to Atlanta. So, you know, he dies that summer. I go back to school, and not many men in their 20s has dealt with their parent dying. Right. So there was just this gap of like empathy and understanding and connecting. You know, um, I was a captain of the water polo team. Uh, I lived with five guys, six guys, and it just was this void of understanding. And, and, and um, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, I kind of always think things happen for a reason. Um, I, I really delved into drinking for about three to five years as a way to, to cope. You know, one of my perceived skills, I say a skill for evil, if you will, um, I was really good at the college wooing, if you will. Mm. Uh, and so I would find myself worth in getting girls to like me. And then, you know, we would hook up or whatever, but my worth was tied up into getting that chase because I didn't feel valued or wanted. Um, and that's where my value came from. And unfortunately I hurt a lot of people uh, in that phase of my life. And so that lack of empathy and connection and understanding 
um, was really hard. You know, um, fast forward a few years and my mom's calling me saying, I want to commit suicide. And I'm like, I can't deal with this. Like, I'm barely keeping it together myself. And, and my response to my mom probably wasn't the nicest, but I was like, hey, if you're going to do it, do it or go get help. But I can't help you right now. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I'm not someone who's in a position to 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 take care of his mom in her mid 50s. You know, I'm trying to sort my own self out in my early 20s. Um, and so the, the, the drinking really culminated in, I don't even know the year, but I was 24, 25 when I got a DUI driving home. Uh, I remember the story really vividly. I was out on the other side of town. My mom lived in Vancouver, Washington at this time. She had moved back from Atlanta back to where we grew up. Uh, and so she was in Vancouver and I was in downtown Portland driving back and I'd gone out after work and I was coming home and we're, I was really close to my house, probably a quarter mile. And in my head, I was Mario Andretti, or in today's parlance, you probably could say like, um, uh, oh my gosh, the Formula One driver that wins everything. Um, uh, Hamil- uh, Lewis Hamilton? Yeah, Lewis Hamilton. I'm just trying to modernize yeah. the story a little bit. But at the time, I thought I was uh, Mario Andretti, and it was this little S turn by my house. And I was going probably 70 in a 35, and the police officer whips around, I see him, and I thought in my head, if I can get home before he gets to me and I get in the house, He'll never know I was there, right? That Sanctuary. Was my, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I can make it. Uh, and so I get there. This is such a funny story. So I get there, the lights come on. My mom's in a very residential, like leave it to Beaver neighborhood, you know, lights come on. I'm in the car. My mom had just started dating this guy and he, he, he comes out in his t-shirt and tidy whities what's going on here? And I was like, oh my goodness, you know? So I ended up going to jail for the night, get out. And um, the, the police officer was super nice. He's like, I'm really sorry to do this. I'm like, nope, I broke the law. It's my fault. Like I was really accountable to the moment. So the consequence of that and leading to the consequence of this is that I had to go to an outpatient program for two years. And so the first six months was four nights a week, three hours a night, super intensive. Uh, then it was six months, once a week for three hours. And then it was a therapist for the next year. Um, and I think at the time, kind of going to your point, Gary, I think at the time I really had a choice on how I was going to approach that. I think most 24 year olds would have been real bitter and resentful. I chose to say, this is an opportunity. And this is that two and four statement, right? It happened for me, it happened to me. Um, And I really said this was a for me moment and really dove into that as an opportunity to really start to peel back the layers of the onions of myself Mm -hmm. and try to understand, you know, what am I trying to do and, and why am I acting this way? And, you know, what's wrong with me and, and all of those things that you kind of have in your early twenties that still kind of follow you in your forties. And now, you know, if you're in your fifties, like sometimes it follows you as you go. So, um, I, I think, you know, Gary, to answer your question in this long winded way, um, I, I figured out at some point in my life for whatever reason that, yeah, you have to look inside you, but you also have to accept things for what they are, what they are and what they are not. And, you know, there's a nice serenity prayer, right? Know, have the wisdom to know the difference um, is what I always hold on to of what you can and can't control. And so there's things when I can control it and it's wrong, I'm accountable. When I can't, I have to let it go. Um, and I think that's kind of where I sit with a lot of my life and choices and outcomes um, is if it's bad, it happened for me. If it is good, it's happened for me. But I think when you move from I'm a victim to a victor, there's there's a huge change and shift mentally in your mind um, that happens. And I think quite often, and, you know, I'm, I'm guessing work, this was you for quite a while, is it was, is you were a victim, 
you know, of your own circumstances and whatever. And so it happened to me. And I just think psychologically, that's really tough to manage um, over a long period of time. Yeah. Wow. I mean, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I sort of thinking if if this book, Crucible's Gift, was a movie and they talk about, you know, the flashback, the origin, you've obviously had a number of crucibles. Would that be like if you had to do, you know, a two-minute origin flashback, would that be the scene going on these uh, back roads near, I think, Vancouver, Washington and the DUI? Would that be like if you had to pick one crucible story that said, okay, this is where I made a choice, you know? Yeah. I, I'm not going to cry and complain about this. I'm going to move in a positive direction. That is such a hard question for me. Because, you know, I could go back to my earliest crucible was being exposed exposed to pornography. Right. You know, at like right. nine years old, 10 years old. Like right. that has a direct long-term impact. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that if I was to say the moment of where I realized I had probably more control of how I responded was with my dad at 13. I mm-hmm. think that that was a, a point of saying, oh, my strength made a difference in his response. Okay. Mm-hmm you know, on some deep level, but yeah, but I mean, yeah. you know, work, you would, you would probably agree that yes, your, your big crucible was that event, but then you got married. That's a different type of, that's a healthy crucible, right? And then you have kids, that's a healthy, but they're all chaotic and you feel out of control, but they're yeah. all in good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, it's so well said. And I want to turn here to your book, but just by way of illustration, um, yes, you could say the biggest crucible for me was, uh, launching the takeover in 987, but as listeners would know, uh, there was an earlier crucible in 11 years before in 1976, where some other family members threw my dad, dad off as chairman of, of the family company. They had enough shares that, you know, they could get together and throw him off. I was 15 at the time, and I mean, I loved my dad, and, you know, I was just devastated. I mean, how could they do this to him? I mean, Okay, you know, I mean, talk about it. They feel like there should be a shift, but don't just throw them off. So, I mean, that was, and then it's like, well, since he's off, at that moment, I was, in my parents' eyes, the heir apparent. So it was crushing for me emotionally, loving my dad. But then it was like, uh-oh, it's now me. Not yet, but it will be, you know. So the the reality of what I was headed to in my future crucible though I didn't quite know what would happen, came then. So yes, it was a foreshadowing of later crucibles. But um, yeah, so one of the things I'm fascinated by, I mean, so much of what you've, everything you've done, I'm fascinated by, but you chose an interesting path to writing this book, The Crucible's Gift. You decide, well, let me interview a bunch of people, which, you know, that people do do that when they write books, but you did it through a podcast, Executive After Hours. And I love that the term you use, because from what I understand, it's like, well, I don't want to just know who they are nine to five, but who are they really at home with their families? I mean, who is the real man or woman leader? So, And then I, I sense you had an idea for the book, but the, the exact nature of it changed partway through. So talk a bit about just what made you decide to write this book at all? And, and use this interesting uh, mode of a podcast as a research method. So how did this whole thing start, this passion for crucibles? and So it did, it did shift. I think I was, I was going to try to write a traditional leadership book of some sort, like that was my interest. But 
what I realized is I was interviewing these leaders and, and the tagline of the podcast was, uh, I care about who you are, not what you do, because who you are defines what you do. And as, as I was doing the podcast, I was fast. I was more interested and curious at dissecting their problems than their job. I didn't, I didn't really care about like, oh, what makes you a great leader? That wasn't interesting to me because I think as, as you've noted, um, a person's story is way more interesting than being a CEO or being a bank clerk, whatever their choice of living is, which is totally fine. The, the exciting part is always their story. Like, how did you get there? Um, and my favorite part of the podcast was always listening to the story and then get to the end and do a wrap up of saying, so I saw when you were 12, this happened. And it seems like you're reflecting that at 37. Is this the case of what I'm hearing and seeing? And they'd be like, yes, I never thought of that. And that to me was kind of like my, my juice. I was like, yes, I'm listening well, I'm connecting the dots and they're getting someplace new and different. And so, you know, um, not to take a, a page out of Dax Shepard, but I really felt like an armchair expert in psychology while I was doing this. Um, and it was, and so for me, it was really fun. And so the notion of writing about people's crucibles spun the idea of, well, what is what made them be better at whatever they were doing? How do those crucibles help? And that's where kind of that framework of the model came up was diving into the literature, reading a bunch of books and kind of um, layering that with stories that kind of supported what I found. Did you almost feel like maybe forensic accountant is the, isn't the right word, but maybe Sherlock Holmes, but somehow you were trying to understand, okay, these folks are great leaders in the holistic sense of the word, not just in numbers, but as human beings, how they treat people, you know, self-aware, all of the things, compassion, all the things you have in your model. Yeah. Where did that come from? And you start digging in their background and their story. And it, it's, it felt like you, know, you had story after story where you found some, maybe it was an example or maybe it was a reaction to what happened and said, look, I'm not going to do that. I think there was one case, I forget, maybe a set of twins and one went one way and the other went the other. I mean, you had- Yeah, yeah, bunch of Mary and her sisters. You hear that a lot in families, right? You know, my brother or sister went one way, but I chose to go a different, I can't tell you how many times I'm sure we both heard that, but that's fascinating. Did you, I mean, that must've been fascinating just as you dug into the sort of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, know, I love that from? framing though. That's what I felt like. Um, and I also, also think you touched on something else that was really interesting. I wasn't defining leaders by numbers and by size of paycheck. Mm -hmm. I was defining them by human beings, right? So really that framework I came up, came up with, though it's, it's couched in the terms of, of authentic leader, it's really about just being an authentic human. And for me, they blur together. The model was developed in a sense that like every good leadership book should have a model. That's kind of what I was being told, but it made sense to me. You know, and, and, and really the core of that whole entire book is the growth mindset. You know, it, it, that really is everything. Um, without it, you're stagnant. Without it, you don't embrace. You don't use it happen for me. You say it happened to me. Without a growth mindset and open to the possibilities of what could be if you think about something differently and ask different questions. And I found that those leaders that made the book, that made the cut, were, were really asking the questions of why did this happen? What is the learning? How can I use this? Um, and so as I wrote the book, I had a clear sense of lens of what I think a good human being would look like based on, and it's super subjective. You could add 25 other features of this thing by all means, but, but, but from my perspective, 
um, that was kind of the path or spiral to authenticity, if you will. Yeah, I love that concept. I know you talk uh, later, I think it's in chapter six, learning about Carol Dweck and the whole growth mindset, which I think is partly what you're talking about. Uh, and you talk, say growth mindset is when a person basically continues to want to learn and design mastery, likes feedback and a fixed mindset performance, and they certainly don't like feedback. Um, so, I mean, there there is this choice that people make to learn from what they went through. I mean, one of the things we talk about is, um, like for, for me, you know, I had to go, well, why did I, why did I end up this way? And I had to learn, gosh, I'm not a Rupert Murdoch, take no prisoners, chief executive. I'm a reflective advisor. So it was a terrible fit. I wasn't living my own vision. I wasn't even living my dad's vision. I was living a vision five generations, 150 years before John Fairfax, who was an entrepreneur. Those entrepreneurial genes kind of faded over the generations. They became extinct, really. We were more like philosophy professors, not entrepreneurs. <laughs> you know, we just died. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there were so many lessons. It's just I was living somebody else's vision. I wasn't living a lot of my design. So, but I could have said, oh, you know, oh, woe is me. But I basically brought a lot of trouble on myself. I was like, okay, this was awful. But eventually, now what am I going to do? I was like, 30 years old. I mean, what am I going to do now? So yeah, you have to make a choice. So so let's just start with Crucible because I love your definition um, there. And I think the guy who wrote the forward, he puts it this way, James Kelly defines a crucible as a significant moment, positive or negative impact, which forces a leader to become introspective, assess their strengths and weaknesses, leading them to become more self-aware. So I feel like one of the core theses, or thesis, if you will, about a crucible is there's an opportunity to become self-aware. So talk about that, because that feels like that is one of the core premises of your book, which I completely agree with. Yeah, so, but this dovetails on really what I said before, to be self-aware, you've got to be open-minded. You've got to have a growth right. mindset. So right. that's why, you know, not that the audience can see it, but there's like three rings in my model. The middle ring is the crucible, and the next ring out is really the half and half of growth mindset versus self-awareness. And, you know, there, there are different types of self-awareness. There's a self-awareness of that's not my fault, which isn't really self-awareness, it's other awareness. <laughs> and then there's self-awareness of where is the learning that can happen in this? If I was to uh, put my philosophy hat on, if you will, um, uh, as I still have the entrepreneurial genes, but I'd love to be more of a philosopher, the, the reality is of self-awareness is that that's the scariest thing because you might find something you don't like, but mm -hmm. you also can equally find something that you love. And I think it's knowing the difference is really important and embracing both. You know, if, you're, if your aim is perfection, you're going to be miserable your whole life because mm -hmm. nothing's perfect. Um, if your aim is just to be a better version of you, accepting what you're not great at, but work on being better at it, that's a much better way to live. It's a much more tolerant and, and, and way kinder to yourself. You know, when, when I talk about compassion in the book, I talk about self-compassion is probably one of the most important things. And I struggle at it. Like I am my own worst critic. Uh, I'm, I'm hardest on myself. So is Warwick. That's why he's laughing. So is Warwick. Yeah. <laughs> he's his own worst critic. Amen. Yeah. I mean, it's unhealthy, but it is, is what it is. And so I think the, the goal in life is to be more self-compassionate as you get older, you know, uh, but it's not easy. And Warwick, before we leave the subject of how crucible is defined in James's book, I looked up 
how crucible is defined by you in your book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to uh, Lead a Life of Significance, uh, uh, which came out on October 19th. And here's how it's described in your book. And listen, some of the same words is fascinating. This is what you wrote, Warwick. Moments that bring us to a critical crossroads in our lives and provide invaluable opportunities to reflect, reassess, and redefine our purpose and vision in life and leadership. That's your definition of a crucible. And it and it's right. I mean, you guys are both onto something that is not just your opinion, but is based on uh, lived reality that so many people have been through. No, well, it's, and, it's so and, true. And just to add to that, you know, one of the things in, in work, you're probably the poster child for this, by the way. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I think is most fascinating is that not everyone embraced their crucible in the moment. It'd be 10 years. It might be 20 years. Right. Right. And so it's never in the moment that, you know, like in the moment it's terror, it's freak, it's scary. It's this, it's that. But as time and distance goes from that, it's the ability to look back and ask that question that's really important and pertinent. Mm. And, and that's the thing I think that you've done over time, um, that I've done over time. And, I, and that's what I found in the book. You know, the person who wrote the forward, Joe Burton, you know, he was a high flying executive by 40 years old, but he was broken. He was broken as a man, broken as a body. Like he was broken. And he had to go back and look to his childhood to figure out why he was how he was and uncover that crucible to redirect his life. But it took him 10, 15, 20 years to get to that point. Oh, it, it's so true. I mean, through a lot of the 90s, you know, I wasn't so much blaming other people. I mean, yes, there was instability in the family for decades. And yeah, I could point to all that. But for me, it was just like, how could I have been so dumb? How could I have been so dumb? And how could I think that uh, doing a $2 billion takeover that the rest of my or other family members would want to stay in a privatized company run by a 26-year-old? I mean, come on, I had Harvard MBA. I mean, Harvard MBA. I mean, how could I have been so dumb? So that was a lot of it. Was that yeah. ego? No, it was, for me, it was more youthful naivety and idealism. It was feeling like the company is not being run along the ideals of the founder, who is a person of great faith. Uh, I was too. So not so much, you know, Jesus lives on the front pages, but more just in terms of how people are treated in the company and, you know, the quality of the newspaper. Uh, but it was just this sense of, as my parents believed too, the vision is straight from the founder. I wanted to see the company be well managed or better managed. So it was more youthful naivety, uh, idealism with a bit of a crusader mentality. That was, it wasn't about money or power or it's like, yeah, I'll still work in the marketing planning department while it's you know, you guys keep your titles. And it was it was all very naive, but it was idealistic. The intentions, I think, were were good, but it was um, a lot of bad things can happen with good intentions. But mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, to your point about, you know, bouncing back, just this self-awareness, I know for me, um, and from my faith perspective, sort of anchored in my Christian faith, it's I had to go from I screwed up God's plan because I felt like, oh, God had this plan to restore the company and the deals of the founder. Poor theology, if you wanted it to happen, it would have, despite my mistakes and stupidity. But really, the, the core of me reclaiming my self-esteem and self-awareness is God loves me and I believe every human on the planet unconditionally. 
not because of what we do, just because we're human. As humans, we have innate worth. And beyond Christianity, I think most major religions, philosophies believe in the worth of, of, of a human being. I want to jump in just for a second, because Warwick says this all the time, James, and I never get this opportunity to have someone who understands <laughs> this stuff as well as Warwick does. And you've interviewed all of these people. You've written this book about how people process their crucibles, how they move past them, move beyond them. And one of the things Warwick says that I'm always a little sad to hear him say, not that he he's being authentic and he's he's acknowledging mistakes but he all he he often says i was stupid and that always strikes me as perhaps not the not the the emotional wisest place to be it's <laughs> it's it's great to be authentic and warwick is right. is one of the most authentic people i know but that self degradation mm -hmm. if you will i don't know is that, yeah. in your experience, in who you've talked to, for our listeners, not just for work, but for our listeners, is that helpful or are there better ways to go about that? <laughs> no, I think you should be harder on yourself, Warwick. I think you should actually <laughs> call yourself first names. Um, yeah. I feel like that's a loaded question, Gary. Of course it's not helpful. Uh, you know, and, and it, <laughs> but it goes back to that idea of um, huh. acceptance, right? Like, right. Um, you know, you said something, Gary, that I thought was really interesting, you know, and I know, I know you weren't trying to be flippant with the words, like they move on from crucibles, they, whatever, to me, you don't move on, you accept them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, the, and I know it's a fun, a small, a small difference in language, but it really matters in this because you can't ever leave them behind. That's a scar on your back. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, yeah. Gary, you have your scars and you shared a little bit about your story with me when we did a pre-interview, like we all have scars and it's the ownership of them. That's the brilliance. That's the best part because mm -hmm. that ownership is the experience that allows you to be a better version of yourself. And Absolutely. so, you know, I never want to minimize my crucibles. I mean, geez, I've lived on four continents and I've drug, drug my kids to two different continents, you know, in the last, five years and you know like their crucibles are equally their scars on their back good or bad as it might be um and so i think they're essential i think again the point i keep going back to and, and i think is so relevant you know and it drives the self-awareness is the ability to accept them for the goodness in them not the mm -hmm. badness in them you know you hear of stories of women and men who've been abused or raped or whatever and those that say, hey, you know what, that was a blessing because of X. I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't great. I would never want it on anybody else, but it made me a better version of myself because of Y, you know, and that those people I love so much because they have every right to 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 hate and detest and, you know, be negative. And but, the, but they choose not to. And for me, you can see that gets me really fired up. For me, it's it's so important for our world to stop hanging on to what's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like we just hang on to all the crap and all the disagreements and all, and it's just not helpful for anybody. Um, and I'm gonna step down off my soapbox, and we can, we no, can keep no, 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 no. I, I think what <laughs> what you said is just so profound. I want listeners to reflect on this because. You know, one of the things you talk about is just this growth and gratitude, and part of that obviously is acceptance, and then seeing some blessings that have come through that. Yeah, I mean, we've interviewed maybe seventy plus guests of every kind of background, gender, race, from uh, 
a Navy SEAL that was paralyzed in a training accident to victims of abuse, business failure, every kind of crucible you can imagine. And the journey back is always the same and very much in line with what you're, you write. It's acceptance, but somehow finding meaning in it, finding purpose. I mean, we had a woman on uh, a few weeks ago, and we have a few Australians. Funnily enough, I don't know why we have so many Australians on the yeah, podcast. There's been uh, like five Australians <laughs> and one person from Wisconsin where I'm from. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Who, I don't know why that happens. But anyway, she uh, was uh, paralyzed and was diagnosed as a quadriplegic uh, at age 13 in a diving accident, at least an above ground pool. Parents kept saying, you know, her name is Stacy Kopass. Stacy, stop, stop doing that. Stop doing that. You know what kids, when they're 13, they're not going to listen to their parents. Well, this had lifelong consequences. So obviously she went through years of, oh my gosh, you know, what did I do? And, you know, uh, had some substance issues, which she talks about, which understandable. But she now says that what she went through was a gift. And that's, and you've obviously heard this before, but this is stunning. How could being a you know a diagnosed as a quadriplegic be a gift? But so many of them, they see blessings in what they went through. And and for me, you know, I, I, it's only recently that I'm thinking maybe what I went through was a blessing or a gift because I don't know. A few weeks, a few months ago, I would yeah, you know, I said I, it can be useful to but a gift. But <laughs> that's exactly what you said because I put it in a press release and you're like, I don't think it was a gift. Uh, yeah. So finally, so I'm trying to grow and learn myself. But for me, the really the turning point, um, just by way of analogy, was 2008. Again, you know, listeners would have heard this, but 2008 at my church, uh, the pastor, it was like a 2000 plus evangelical church, the pastor was giving a, a message on the life of David. He was, uh, Saul was trying to kill him because he was doing a good job. And this day and age, if your boss doesn't like what you're doing because you're showing him up, they typically don't kill you, but they did back then. <laughs> you know? I'm glad we so. modernize our uh, <laughs> yeah. situations. It's like, oh, I'm fine. I can take being fine. Just don't kill me. Uh, but anyways, he was feeling bad about himself. So he wanted a, a, some illustration of a righteous person, a falsely persecuted. Well, that's not me. I made a lot of my own mistakes. But the point of the story is I shared my story in about seven to 10 minutes of growing up in Australia in a big family media business and nobody had ever heard of it. Obviously, it's Australia's a long way away. But weeks and months after, people came up to me and said, you know, Warwick, what, Warwick, what you shared was so helpful. Well, how many former media moguls are there in the audience? Like none? It's one thing to say you're a cancer survivor or abuse survivor. Well, there was one. I mean, there was one in the audience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me. But yeah, a lot of some. Sadly, some crucibles. So many people have gone through. Point of the whole, whole story is, if by sharing my story and writing my book, which was unbelievably painful, it took years to write. Because imagine writing about an exhaustive detail about your worst experiences, which you've done some of. So you, you get it. But if my pain can help others. Now that motivated me. And there was, I talk about there's some healing in being able to use your pain to help others. So yeah, all that's to say is, as you can see a blessing and a gift in what you've been through, I, that really, that was part of my journey back. And I mean, I'm assuming that's your experience with the people you've interviewed and just the benefit of seeing what you've been through is having some- Can I comment on something you please, just said that, that was really interesting? Yeah. Um, you know, this this epic failure, let's be clear, it was an epic failure, sure. right? Right, crucible. Um, you're talking 10, 50, how many years later before you, 2008 from that? From that yeah. 
Now, was it was it twenty years, ten years? Well, it was nineteen ninety that the company went under. So I don't know whatever that is. Eighteen. So years almost later twenty on. years, right? Yeah, yeah. So what that says to me though is that you never had acceptance. Maybe right. You know, like if if it's still painful for you to talk about it eight, 20 years later and write about it, then there's you know there's that level of acceptance of of it is what it is and then move on, right? So for for me, you know, as we kind of open the show, my acceptance of my failures happened pretty quick. You know, mm-hmm. now I may blame myself for them, but I accept sure. it like it sure. is what it is. And so for me, that's a great sign that if you're now shifting from kind of it happened to me to it's a gift that happened for me. It's unpacking and unraveling that package and pulling yeah. out those gifts and sharing them, which is what it sounds like you're starting to do now. Yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, that that's my point about like time doesn't care about your crucible. It's you have to make the decision of how you're going to open that gift or not. Well, and I feel like acceptance doesn't, for most people, something for me didn't happen overnight. It was a growth process, yeah. you know, step by step. I mean, there was a time uh, in the 90s when, you know, I got invitation to Oxford reunions and Harvard Business School reunions. I wouldn't go. I was too embarrassed. I feel like, you know, being like a leper, you know, unclean, leave the town. <laughs> and I eventually went to one and it's like, it was okay because, you know, there are other Harvard MBAs have actually had business failures. Who knew? Yeah, uh, maybe yeah. not quite so epic, <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah. So I'm just trying to, I mean, there's so much in this. I love, obviously we talked a bit about crucibles, self-awareness. You talk about the public versus the private self, which I get, you know, the public persona, but Round out some of these other things you have because you've got integrity, compassion, relatableness, great word, learning, which you've talked about. What are some of the other parts of the model that really are the keys to being an authentic leader? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, to unpack that a little bit, you know, the compassion to me is really important. And initially the book started with uh, empathy uh, as the main core idea. But I kind of said, you know, Compassion means you want to remove that person's pain. You want to really try to figure out how you can help them. And in doing compassion, that's a level of selflessness. Um, and in selflessness, there's actually joy. And giving is joy. And so I kind of wanted to make that leap to say, if you really um, want to be a better version of yourself, give yourself to someone else in a way that's helpful for them. When we speak about um, relatableness and integrity, I think integrity goes without saying, you know, but I, I, I'm really narrow on integrity and this is probably a reflection of my life. The biggest thing I saw in, I see in business and I see in interactions is follow through with, with the request you made or the promise you have. Um, too often people give themselves outs. Yeah, I'll email you later. And then they don't. Or, and it's those little tiny micro things that actually have a huge weight on how people perceive you. Too often, you know, I hate the phrase, hey, let's meet up for a drink. You know, hey, let's go get coffee. But you don't really mean it. Like, you're not going to really do it. So then why say it, you know? And then it becomes this parlance of like, it's totally acceptable that you're never going to see that person again, but you're going to say these things because it's the polite thing to say. And I think there's just other ways to go about not falsifying the intent, if you will. Um, so for me, integrity is really the micro things that are the most important. Thing. I think macro, <laughs> yes, we could agree. Killing's bad. Yes, <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. You know, so there's the macro levels of integrity. But the relatableness one for me is really the most important one. Uh, as a PhD in consumer psychology, a lot of this was based on research that was backed up by interviews. And what I found was um, the value in relationships far exceed anything else. Um, and I use a phrase in the book called micro moments of meaning. 
Uh, and for me, it, it's such a critical piece of who I am. Uh, and I'm not always great at it, but you know, the premise of micro moments of meaning is that when you engage in a conversation, one-on-one, two-on-one, when you leave that conversation, leaving the other people smiling or laughing, there's a neurological impact that happens on their brain. And the research suggests that when you leave a conversation with two people and they're smiling or laughing, they're more likely to replicate that with the next person they talk to. And so it becomes this spider web of positivity that you can embed in someone by creating that micro moment of meaning. It may not mean a lot for you, but it could mean a lot for them. Um, and that kind of goes back to the compassion side of being of service of others. You know, that's my Jesuit uh, background, being of service of others. Um, and so the relatableness is about creating those micro moments of meaning that have a long-term impact because that's also the last way they remember you, right? So that smile, so that, that's their last memory. That's their most immediate interaction with you. So that means that that's how they're going to frame you in their mind as the funny, nice, kind, happy person. Um, and so that's really important as a way to leave somebody uh, in a moment. I am going to try to interject a micro moment of meaning here by saying, and hopefully it'll leave you with a smile on your face, James, when I'm done talking, but the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. It is time to begin preparing the cabin for landing, but before I do that, I would be remiss if I did not give you a chance, James, to let listeners know how they can find out more about you, the services you offer, and particularly where they can find your book. Um, because obviously you and Warwick uh, traffic in some of the same stuff and there's great wisdom in both. So how can they find out more about you? Yeah. So the book is on Amazon uh, and it's got the digital, you know, the audio book is great. I, I hired three actors to come in and act out the different scenes, the different stories in the book. Um, so that makes the book really fun and engaging because it's not just a voice. Um, so I, I really encourage the audio book out of all of them if you do it, but, but the book is on Amazon. Um, in terms of me, you can always reach out to me at jkelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y at qchange.com. It's the letter Q and then change.com. Um, as for what I do and what, what we do as a company, um, you know, we're really in the business of impacting people at the point of choice. And so what does that mean? Um, our, our product or solution helps leaders be better at their job by giving them prompts and behavioral prompts, soft skill prompts immediately before a meeting. But then after the meeting, we're asking them, did you do this? We ask those around them, did you see this? You know, and we allow them to grow in the flow of work, not intrusively, just twice a day. But what's great about it from an individual level is that you can get that repetitive behavior prompting that you need to be better at being a better version of yourself. You know, in our solution, we have a whole authentic leadership area. So if someone's trying to be an authentic leader, they have those options to work on uh, beyond DE&I and communication and strategy. So, you know, that's what we do. We're in Microsoft Teams. Um, and that's our main platform that we, you know, sell our product in. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's awesome. And we've got a ton of great feedback around it. And I wouldn't tell you if we had bad feedback anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. Well, well, thank you so much, uh, James. I mean, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about uh, integrity, compassion, relatableness, that I often think to me, you know, with great leaders, there's something that fuels them, not just because it's a good way to be successful in the holistic sense of the word, but it comes from values. It could be a faith perspective or maybe an example from childhood, but I know for me, you know, one of my highest values is 
treating everybody with dignity and respect. And so I'm not perfect. I have my bad days like we all do, and I can be cranky and obstinate, but I really try to know, you know, know what's happening. And so I think that's what you're talking about with relatableness. You know, gee, I'm sorry, you know, how was the weekend? Oh, your kid was sick. Oh, wow, really? That's awful. Mm-hmm. The next day, so, you know, how is your daughter? Is she better now? How was that sore throat? Was it, you know, um, or strep? Was it, it was strep? Oh, really? I mean, you ask, you follow up, not because you try to, you know, be successful, because it's the right thing to do out of your set of values. You know, you don't, if it's out of your intrinsic values, you're not going to forget because you will do it because you want to do it. And same with the integrity. I love your definition, do plus say equals trust. Again, that comes out of values that, you know, if you say you're going to do something, then, then do it, you know, because it's, it's the right thing to do. And if you say you're going to call somebody, then, well, then, I mean, it, it comes out of and being compassionate again. I love that sense. Empathy is fine, but compassion is like empathy in action, if you will. So all of these things relate to us. I don't know if it's a worldview, but just a desire, a certain set of values. And uh, maybe even, for, I guess my sort of last question as we sort of try and sum all this up, which is a challenge because there's so much here, you know, with Crucible's gift, what what's the biggest lesson that you would want people to have as they read this book and reflect on it? What's the biggest lesson you would offer people in, in Crucible's gift? It's good. You're making them think. That's good, work. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, is the silence awkward for everyone? Um, Not at all. <laughs> no, the, the plane is just circling the runway. We're good. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Um, <laughs> everyone's seatbelts are buckled. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think the biggest lesson I want someone to get is be open. Be open to the possibility of what if there's a different narrative you could tell yourself? What if there's a different question you could be asking yourself? What if the crucible that, that has held you back is untethered and is actually that opportunity? So just what if? And that was the sound of the plane touching down. Um, ec- <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Please gather up your belongings and we'll see you the next time. Uh, Listeners, thank you for spending time with us uh, on this episode of Beyond the Crucible. I have some homework for you. Uh, Rather than takeaways from the episode, I have some homework for you. I love this idea that, that James talked about, about micro moments of meaning. So the homework from those of us at Beyond the Crucible is go out today and find at least three opportunities that you can leave someone with a micro moment of meaning flip back to the podcast, back up, hear James describe it so you know exactly what you're looking to do. But but let's do some of that to each other. I think uh, uh, we can really turn around uh, a lot of people's days if we do that and it connects to and like the old, you know, talk about dating ourselves, uh, uh, the old shampoo commercials and they told two friends and so on and so on and so on. If everybody passes that along, it could make um, a great impact. So until the next time we are together, please do remember this. As we've discussed here, your crucible experiences are painful and they're not easily overcome in most cases. You've heard us talk about it in every episode of the show and, we, and you've heard James and, and, and Warwick talk about it today, but they can be overcome. The key is your perspective on what the crucible means to you. Did it happen to you or did something happen for you? Can you learn the lessons of it, apply those lessons and move forward? Because when you do, it's not 
the end of your story. It's not the worst chapter of your story even. It's a new chapter that can become the best chapter of your story. Because where it leads in the end, as you follow the road on that journey, is to a life of significance.